the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to start by talking about what's going on with the UAW. Scandals, resignations, difficult contract negotiations. How is the union positioned to help lift up working people here in the early part of the 21st century? Then we'll catch up with Democratic State Senator Mallory McMorrow to talk about what is going on in Lansing as lawmakers regather after the fall break. That's all next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Hey everyone, it's Stephen Henderson of 1019 WDET here for Detroit Today, our daily look at issues that challenge us and intrigue us here in Detroit and Southeast Michigan and the state of Michigan. I'm really glad you've joined. A little later in the program, we're going to catch up with Democratic State Senator Mallory McMorrow to talk about legislators who are returning to work next week after a few weeks off for both deer hunting season and for Thanksgiving. There's a lot going on in Lansing, a lot of conflict unfolding that uh, is about the budget and some other issues. But last week, we saw the state Senate Majority Leader, Mike Shirky, say something that really offended a number of not just Democratic members of the legislature, but lots of other people as well. We're going to start talking with her about that. Then we're going to talk about an idea she has for tax incentives, one of the big issues that confounds us in Lansing and confounds lots of local governments as well. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation. It should get started right at about half past the hour. But first, we want to talk about the UAW. The corruption scandal there has set off a real firestorm, and it is blazing its way through union leadership, through relationships between automakers and bleeding into contract negotiations. And the fallout has some former union officials publicly calling for wholesale change within the UAW. This is a subject that I think is very close still to lots of people here in Southeast Michigan. You think of the number of people who work not only for uh, the the Detroit Three automakers, but also lots of other auto-related businesses. The organization of those workers uh, or the non-organization of those workers in many cases is something that affects the way that all of them live. It affects the way that they're paid, their job security, and other issues. So we want to hear from folks who are either members of the union or working in auto jobs. Uh, Do you think the future of organized labor is in trouble? Do you think scandals like what we're seeing happen at the UAW will have lasting damage? And how important do you think unions still are in 2019? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us now to talk more about what's going on with the UAW is Frank Joyce. He is a Detroit author and activist who joins us frequently to talk about issues usually of race and class and inequality here in our country. He is also, though, the former public relations director for the UAW, a post he held from 1990 until 2002. Frank Joyce, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Always great to speak with you. Yes. Uh, so let's first talk about your reaction to what's going on with the UAW. We saw the president... Uh, Gary Jones resigned last week. Just the latest news in this unfolding scandal. What, from your vantage point, is happening inside that union? Well, I think that chickens are coming home to roost would be one way to put it. I think that corruption is a symptom of deep problems that uh, have been long in the making. But I also think this is a, it sounds far-fetched, but I think that this is really an opportunity for the UAW to reinvent itself as the kind of union that workers need uh, in the heading into the year uh, 2020. Um, 
it's uh, workers need unions more than ever. That's pretty clear. I mean, the growth of corporate power uh, and the disempowering of workers has been underway now for more than 25 years. So my perspective on this is, as I say, to see it uh, as a chance not just to clean house, which certainly needs to happen, but to really think ahead, not backwards, and what does the UAW need to be for its members and for the larger community going forward? That's how I look at it. So, so for a while now, the UAW's focus has been on regrowing membership. It's down to among the lowest membership it's ever had. And it had a couple of strategies, I thought, to try to expand that. One was going to the South in particular, where you have a lot of auto plants, foreign auto plants now that are not organized. Uh, it also was trying to branch out to some other kinds of work to, to pull people in to say, look, we can we can ensure better job security for you. We can ensure higher wages. That seems to have not worked quite as well as they hoped it would. But I wonder how you think what we're seeing now with these scandals and the the allegations of corruption are maybe affecting those efforts to expand the, the, the membership? Well, they definitely make it harder to organize, not just in the South, but uh, anywhere. I mean, one of the UAW's assets traditionally has been, uh, unfortunately, contrasted with other unions that the UAW has you know, run a very uh, clean organization. As far as reaching out, just personally, Stephen, I've been a member of five different UAW locals in my life, and I'm currently a member of UAW Local 1981, which began as the National Writers Union, and which is an example of how the UAW has had some success at reaching out to white-collar workers, graduate students, and so on and so forth. And I think even that will become more difficult absent some really deep and radical change that, as I say, reinvents the UAW for the time that uh, we find ourselves in now. I think that means a lot of soul-searching. I think that means a lot of hard work. I think it means not just dealing with corruption, but with the sexist culture of the UAW that many institutions have uh, more deeply and profoundly addressed than, sadly, the UIW has. Same for remnants of white supremacy in the UIW. Nepotism is a very long-standing problem. The code of silence and the one-party state in the UIW are all carryovers from a different time and a different era and solutions to different problems than the UIW faces now. One of the things uh, that some people know that uh, another colleague of mine, a former PR director, and I called for in an op-ed we wrote back uh, in early October is the UAW needs to reach out beyond itself. Uh, One suggestion we floated was uh, to uh, rediscover the UAW's connection to the Canadian Auto Workers Union, which now has a different name. That's one possibility. I think the UAW could consider reaching outside of its ranks for new leadership. Um, You know, it might mortify her to hear me say this, but why shouldn't Rashida Tlaib be the next president of the UAW, or Hmm. Stacey Abrams, or... Heather McGee, what kind of message would that send, Hmm. not only to union members, but to the larger community that, yes, we are now stepping up to the realities of 2020? Hmm. I'm talking with Frank Joyce, a Detroit author and activist who is also a former public relations director for the UAW. We're talking about the news, the headlines that are coming out of the UAW these days. Not much about organizing, not much about uplifting 
working people here in the early part of the 21st century, there is headlines about scandals and corruption in the union. Uh, What effect is that having on the union's effectiveness to bargain on behalf of its members with auto companies and other companies where it represents uh, workers? Uh, Also, where is the union headed? What's the future of this union in the 21st century at a time when the need to advocate on behalf of working people is perhaps more acute than it has been in many decades. As always, we want to hear from you on the phones. Uh, Tell us whether you are a member of a union, maybe a former member, a retired member of the UAW. What do you think of the future of organized labor? Is it in trouble? Is this a sign of a deeper set of issues that we have with organized labor in this country. Also, do you think scandals like this will have lasting damage to the UAW? And tell us how important you think unions still are here in 2019. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's start with uh, Frank in Detroit. Frank. Welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Hi. And good morning, Frank. Um, hi, Frank. <laughs> yes, hi. So uh, certainly there's a multi- multiplicity of problems that have brought us to this point where uh, much of the leadership has been found to be uh, uh, criminally responsible for uh, fraud and corruption and kickbacks and so on. But I certainly think uh, that this is the tip of the iceberg, that uh, we have far deeper-ranging problems that date back decades when the UAW began to subscribe to the notion that the best way that we would be a union is in partnership with the companies to make the companies more competitive. And even though the UAW promised uh, job security with each and every contract that we've negotiated since the 80s, for example, in General Motors, we've gone down in population from 450,000 workers to now 46,000 workers. So it's a real, very, very serious problem that the UAW faces with regard to automation, with regard to outsourcing, and it has not been able to challenge these problems effectively. In the meantime, the fact that we, the UAW has been unable to organize the non-union auto plants in the South has really undermined our ability to negotiate for the workers in the North. And a a very good example of this was recently in the campaign, the second campaign to organize the Volkswagen workers in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And what really struck me about the uh, drive, the second drive there, is how close the vote was for Volkswagen workers wanted to join the UAW, even though, the National Right to Work and other right-wing uh, organizations had all kinds of billboards showing the corruption of the UAW and plain text. And nevertheless, the workers still wanted to join the UAW in close numbers. And it tells you a little bit about the conditions under which Volkswagen workers work. Sure. So I think the relevance of unions is absolutely paramount, and we need a new type of leadership in the UAW to be able to capitalize on that and to be able to organize more workers and strengthen its its uh, membership. Mm. Frank, I really appreciate the call and uh, and your thoughts. Uh, Frank Joyce, I, I want to focus in on one of the things that he said about the union's failure to be able to adapt to the tremendous amount of change that's happened in the industry itself, this uh, this trend toward automation and technology, which of course threatens jobs and work. Uh, assess from your chair how, how the union has been able to, to weather all of that. Well, I think obviously it hasn't weathered it all that well, but I do want to uh, echo uh, Brother Frank's uh, comment about sort of the attitude of the workers I spent, made several visits during the GM strike to the local 22 picket line, which happens to be the closest GM plant to my house, and I was really impressed with the conversations that I had with the GM workers on that line, and what a contrast it was to the corruption scandal. Here we had older workers on strike essentially to support better wages and working conditions for younger workers. We had higher-paid workers striking on behalf 
of reducing the gap with the lower-paid workers. So I think that the existing UIW membership, even though the numbers are reduced, and the existing supporters of the UAW in all of the transplant factories in the South is a tremendous asset. And as Frank says, with a different, with recapturing the UAW's earlier emphasis on social justice and creative and fresh leadership and some genuine, as I said, soul-searching and repudiation of some of the internal problems that the UAW has had, I, I, again, I think there's a real opportunity here. And I'm aware that there are leaders of local unions in the UAW who are calling for this kind of fundamental reform. And hallelujah, and let me know how I can <laughs> help, because uh, it, it's important to get this right. It's important to workers. It's important to the, to the entire society that this potential asset to all working people is as healthy and strong as it can be. Hmm. Uh, again, Frank in Detroit, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Tom in Utica. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and good morning to both of you. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to say as a, a longtime UAW member and uh, former Chrysler worker, your last caller hit it on the nail on the head. Look, the UAW's reputation is tarnished to the point where it can't recover. They're thieves. They stole our money. They lied to us, and they're ineffective. We're in the state where the big three, the Motor City, originated car building, and we're a right-to-work state, the UAW, supported that that is abs- that tells you the story of the UAW mm. look back when they had the bankruptcy companies were merging to survive and that's what the UAW's mistake was they should have merged with other unions strong unions let's say for instance the teamsters or maybe another uh, group of workers so that they had power in numbers they have no power now they're ineffective their marketing is horrible. The reputation is done. Disband it. Sell the assets. Just like a city that files for bankruptcy, let the Department of Labor appoint somebody to oversee this group and start over because you're not representing the people that you promised you sure. were going to represent. There's so, no point in paying dues anymore. So there Tom, is no point. So Tom, are, are you a current member also of the UAW? You Absolutely. Said, yeah. So, 30 plus years. So, I mean, you still have to rely on, on the union to negotiate a contract for you, to try to protect your job as automation sort of creeps in and things like that. I mean, you see, you sound like you have zero confidence in, in the union. I, I guess I'm wondering how that works for you. Look, zero confidence. Look, somebody that steals your money and uses the credit card to do it, how stupid are those people? Do I want to rely on those people? No, hmm. they can't even steal money properly. Hmm. No. Hmm. Absolutely not. Wow. Uh, Tom, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. We should correct one thing Tom said. He said that the UAW supported right to work here in, in Michigan. That actually I don't think is true. I don't remember that happening. I think they were. Well, the UAW didn't support right to work, but I would agree with Tom that it was some political ineptitude on the part of the UAW, of which there are many other manifestations uh, that that allowed it to happen. I, I want to respond to one thing that Tom said, that mm-hmm. most of which I've already said I agree with. I don't think Donald Trump or, for that matter, even Bernie Sanders' Labor Department running the UAW is the solution to the problem. Mm. I do support a whole new set of outside alliances and possible mergers and reaching outside the ranks uh, of labor and to other progressive leaders, as I've said, I think all of that makes sense. Um, but I think it makes sense in part for purposes of avoiding the control of the Labor Department, which just does not have the interests of auto workers or any other workers as one of its priorities. You feel like so I just the, want to be clear on the record on that point. You feel like the union has to fix this on its own. It can't rely on yes, it. Yes, with help. And with with 
outside help because I think internally uh, the culture of not just of corruption, but as I've said, of sexism and of white supremacy and of all of these other things. I mean, you have, you do have to, let me just make this concrete suggestion. One of the problems is the code of silence and is the transparency. Let's start by publishing the minutes of IEB meetings in which there were people who were voting to get rid of Gary Jones, but who didn't have a majority. Well, let's find out how amongst the current leadership people lined up on that question just being that transparent would be a step forward and it would give us a better picture of how forces are playing out within the current uh, leadership now notwithstanding the fact that i think um and i think i heard both tom and frank say this too i mean the uiw if the uiw could have repaired itself it wouldn't be in the mess it's in now. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Frank Joyce, and we'll continue to take your calls. Arnold in East Detroit, Aaron in Detroit, Peter in Detroit, Tom in Northwest Detroit, we will get to you. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You are listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Frank Joyce, a Detroit author and activist who also was the public relations director for the UAW from 1990 to 2002. We're talking about the headlines that we're seeing out of the union right now, headlines about scandal, headlines about corruption, and really difficult union negotiations with the Detroit Automakers, uh, we want to hear from you as well. What do you think about all of that? What do you think about the position of that union here in the early part of the 21st century? And are these things that we're reading about really damaging the union and its ability to serve its members effectively? Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page. Put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's start with uh, Peter in Detroit. Peter, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen and Frank. Uh, as a longtime Teamster activist, I'm certainly familiar with uh, corruption and trying to change the culture of our union. For 40 years of my working life, hmm. we've carried on a campaign among the ranks to change things in our union. Frank, to be honest, uh, the code of silence and the lack of transparency has existed for decades, including 1990 to 2002. You were the main spokesperson for the UAW, and, you know, you could have uh, either addressed that publicly or addressed that within the confines of the union. Also, I think this is much more than just we need outside help. I think it's a perspective and a paradigm that doesn't really place the power of the union in the ranks. Mm. I wonder where you stand on one person, one vote as a change in the union in terms of electing international officers. seems to me that that could break up and open up a lot of possibilities within this culture in terms of actually existing debate and discussion within the union. And I think overall, this whole thing has been, at least since 1979, rooted in a, in a culture of concessions and cooperation not just uh, on the contracts, but then going into these various entities that were set up to sort of facilitate nepotism and facilitate uh, the kind of uh, corruption that we've seen now uh, unraveling in the last uh, couple of years. Peter, uh, I really appreciate the call and the questions. Frank Joyce, I'll give you a chance to, to respond to that. Thanks. Um, well, first, let me say there is plenty of complicity to go around, and I agree with Peter. I was a part of that, and I can look back now on uh, a variety of things I I did, some of which were good, some of which were bad and easier to see in hindsight. Uh, so I, I definitely agree with that point, and I hope that, that, that others can do, you know, a similar soul-searching looking in the mirror as a part of... Uh, 
addressing the crisis. Um, I'm, a, I, I'm fine with changing the election system in the UAW, but I worry that so much is invested in that, and it's been a controversy within the UAW and other unions for a long time. I don't think that the one-man-one-vote is in and of itself a magic bullet. As a part of a series of reforms intended to address uh, you know, election and other UAW cultural issues, yes, it would be a good thing. Uh, in and of itself, it, the, it won't solve the problem. I also just quickly want to say that a part of the difficulty is that the UAW didn't come to terms with how the economy itself has changed, mm. and not just in the auto industry, but it's true that there was a sort of if there ever was a golden age of capitalism, I would agree with Peter. It kind of started to deteriorate ab about 1979 and 1980. And the UAW isn't the only union to have lost members and lost powers since that turning point of which the election of Ronald Reagan was, you know, sort of an inflection point to use the uh, the language of the day. Mm -hmm. So I think a part of radical reform involves a serious assessment of the economy itself and what is the position of workers in that economy now. Mm. It's all it's all connected as the saying goes. Okay, Peter, I really appreciate uh, the call and the questions. Let's go to Kevin in Detroit. Kevin Welcome to the How you doing, Stephen? Yeah, good. How are you? How you doing? Good morning. Go ahead. My question is, you know, I work at uh, Jefferson North Assembly Plant, and I'm here at Local 7. And I was wondering, you know, what about if we just get rid of the delegates, you know, that we have, instead of we vote from the floor like the Teamsters? Hmm. You know, that, that could be some kind of transparency, hmm. wouldn't you think? Uh, Kevin, that's a great question. Uh, Frank Joyce, uh, explain for, for listeners who don't know how elections work in the UAW, how how they do work. Kevin's talking about the election of delegates by by members as opposed to of, of leadership. And explain how that's maybe different sure. from some other unions. Just quickly, the UAW has long had, as Kevin says, a, a representative delegate system. So you don't vote directly for the president of the union, for example. It's not a popular vote system. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it mirrors things like the electoral college mm -hmm. system in the United, in the United States. And uh, for somewhat similar reasons. So again, I'm I'm fine with getting rid of that as long as it's understood that the problems are both deeper and broader than just doing that would would fix. But yes, fine, do that. By the way, I'd like to point out that the Teamsters Union has had its own problems with corruption, and they've not had that system of governance. So again, that goes to the point of good idea, but not a bad magic bullet, and much more than that needs to be done. Yeah, structure matters, but it's not always the reason right. that something works or doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Kevin, I appreciate the call and the questions. Let's go to Arnold in East Detroit. Arnold, welcome to the program. Yes, uh, the, the, the corruption of the UAW officials goes right down to the shop floor. I mean, I've spent 40 years with GM and working shoulder to shoulder with UAW people. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the union representatives ran the gambling in all the plants. You know, I mean, <laughs> the corruption goes deep. And then they play favorites. Your union rep plays favorites with their girlfriends and um, people that help them get elected. It's all the... Uh, a lot of nepotism, you know, a lot of favoritism and stuff like that. So uh, that happens there. Now, the other issue is with, with a lot of UAW members, over 30 percent of UAW members in the last election voted for Trump. Mm. And that was on trade. But yet the UAW keeps supporting politicians in the Democratic Party who have basically screwed us on trade. And the Republicans have screwed us on trade, too. Huh. We had one candidate that said, okay, we're going to do something about trade here. 
and 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 thirty percent of UAW members voted for Trump. Yeah, I, why I, doesn't the UAW support Trump on trade? I, Arnold, that is a, the rank and file does. That is a very very interesting question, you know, no, and, and it gets you know, no, to why is the why, especially in Michigan, the UAW is just another arm of the Democratic Party. Hmm. Arnold, I really appreciate the call and the comments and the question. I think it's a really pertinent question to the conversation that we're having. Frank Joyce, talk about that strain. Well, I, again, strain. I think it's a fair point. And I want to point out, by the way, that this conversation that we've been having uh, so far on their show is exactly the conversation that needs to be taking place in the UAW with the one caveat that so far I think only males have been speaking here yes, and that not is had any... part of the problem yeah. at the UAW <laughs> in and of itself. Um, with regard to trade issues, uh, you know, in the true confessions department, I was a part of developing the strategy of the UAW to put emphasis on NAFTA and other trade issues. I think that we created a monster when we did that, uh, and that uh, and that Trump is uh, you know one of the is part of the evidence for that. A little known fact about auto employment in the United States is that basically it has not really changed that much. There are still a lot of auto workers in the United States and the related supplier industries. What's changed is that the workers at Toyota, the workers at Nissan, the workers at Hyundai, the workers at Mercedes, etc., are not union. It's not that there are fewer of them. It's that fewer of them are in unions, which has seriously eroded the bargaining power of the UAW. And looking back, had we been more creative and more inclusive in early organizing attempts at some of those plants and less emphasizing a failed effort around public policy and trade, we'd be probably having a different conversation. Mm. That's not to say that that conversation can't still go on today, uh, and it is, and it needs to. Uh, again, uh, thanks very much for the call and the really pertinent questions about how the UAW sort of positions itself in the early 21st century. All right, let's get to Elisa in Gross Point Park. We were just talking about the fact that we had not heard from female UAW members. Elisa, what's on your mind? Hi, I would just like to clarify that I'm a former UAW member. I was in the okay. first wave of Tier 2 Chrysler workers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, after I got married and had my second child, I did not return to work in the plant because it was economically foolish to do so for our family, which is obviously a huge conversation unto itself, Hmm. Um, that it would make no sense to work a UAW job (laughs) because it didn't pay enough. Because it didn't pay Um, enough for you to to care for your children in in another way, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, but I've stayed in touch with many of my former coworkers and um, watched this sort of chaos descend. And I am just struck over and over again by how much leadership at the very top has really like dropped the ball and um, bungled opportunities for more creative leadership. And uh, it seems that so many of the upper leadership of the UAW are um, – not coming out of the second tier of workers who have a completely different orientation toward the union and are much more, um, on one hand, much more ride or die because we came out of an economic situation that was far more precarious than the elders Mm -hmm. would have ever imagined. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, more skeptical because we came out of that that same situation and grew up kind of watching the ebb and flow of you know, the auto industry, and many of us, you know, came of age in the 90s when things were great and then suffered through the Great Recession and then, um, you know, have have this other perspective. And I'm not trying to contribute any more to the, you know, OK Boomer culture wars. Right. Um, <laughs> but. but this is actually one of those cases in which uh, really actively searching for um, not just younger but newer voices yeah. Within the rank and file, yeah. within Amen. the rank and file, is 
crucial. Nobody trusts the leadership anymore. Like right. nobody. Elisa, nobody I, does. I, I, I think those are really, really great points. I'm really glad you called. Uh, Frank, I, 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 we've got just a little bit of time left in the segment, but I, I really want to get to this question of whether the union can survive with these two tiers that that, that exist and the strain that it that puts on on solidarity, the idea that, that some people are not quite as equal as others. Well, uh, that, is a, that is a very good point. Um, you know, the, let me zoom way out here for a minute. The economy of the United States, I, I've coined the phrase, I think, locked on zero. You know, when you have an economy, as Reverend Barber has pointed out, that starts with a wage of zero, um, and takes uh, 400 years to get to a minimum wage of $7.25, you've got a really big problem on our hands for the whole society. But that is why I was so encouraged in talking to members on the GM picket lines about them understanding that it's how the lowest wage workers do that's really the crucial thing to focus on and that I think should become a principle of a new UAW, a UAW 2.0, if you will, is to make common cause with the lowest wage workers because that's what's really defining the wages of everyone. And uh, the caller uh, makes a really good point on that, and I think that uh, there are social forces in work out, outside and sometimes overlapping with the union movement that, that create an example of some of the partnerships and alliances that need to be made in, in 2020 to re-energize and rebuild uh, the labor movement we need now mm. and that we can have. Mm. I think we can, this can be done. Okay, Frank Joyce, Detroit author and activist, former public relations director for the UAW. Thanks very much for helping lead Thank a you, really Steve. productive this conversation. Really been a, a very helpful discussion, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. All right. <clears throat> Up next, we're going to talk with State Senator Mallory McMorrow about <clears throat> what's happening in Lansing, including Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky's recent comments that have set off a real firestorm. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. Next week, state lawmakers go back to Lansing after a two-week break for deer hunting season and Thanksgiving. They return to an ever more deeply divided environment than when they left the Capitol earlier this month. That's partly after state Senate Majority Leader called Governor Gretchen Whitmer and legislative Democrats crazy using an expletive that we really should not repeat here on the radio. He did that in front of a group of Republicans at Hillsdale College. Senator Mike Shirky has since apologized for the comment and says he regrets it. But what's the prospect of getting anything of substance done in that kind of political climate before the end of the year? And does this mark a more acrimonious relationship between the new governor and the new legislature? Here to help us sort all of that out is State Senator Mallory McMorrow. She is a Democrat from Royal Oak. She represents the 13th Senate District and recently wrote an op-ed in Crane's Detroit Business titled, It's Time for Smarter Incentives in Michigan. We're going to talk about that as well. But Senator McMorrow, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you. Um, let's start with uh, with this whole idea of what Mike Shirky said and what your reaction was to it. Yeah, my reaction, I, I saw it on Thursday, the story hit, and I was absolutely floored. It was so disrespectful. It was so inappropriate. Um, and, you know, it went further to say that uh, the governor has the Democratic caucuses, quote unquote, locked up and that we sit around waiting for her to call us to do this or that. 
um, which is just so far from the truth. So in response, you know, I posted I've introduced 12 bills, none of which have gotten a hearing yet. Uh, We've held 22 constituent hours in the district. I committed to the first two months of my job because I'm new to the legislature saying yes to everything. And I was working 14 hour days, seven days a week. So the idea that we're doing nothing is just a trickle down from the dialogue we hear from the president, frankly, that we're, quote unquote, do nothing Democrats Mm. um, in different language. And it it is beyond frustrating. So so some people have said these comments were sexist, that Mike Shirky wouldn't have said them if the governor were a man and that that part of the point here was diminishing the governor because she's a woman. Do you do you take his comments that way? Yeah, we, we've seen a threat of that um, and something that both Shirky and, and a number of other members of that caucus have started saying is is my governor. Right. She refers to him as my governor um, versus the governor. And I actually sent him an email um, earlier this year to say, hey, you may not realize this, but this comes across as as very possessive. It's pretty condescending. And as somebody who, and I told him this, as a sexual assault survivor, that comes across in a way that you may not realize um, is putting her down. When there is one governor, there isn't my governor or your governor, she's the governor of, of the state of Michigan. And it's kind of a way of trying to imply a solidarity that I'm not sure he follows through on. I think if he were a different kind of politician, if somebody who had worked in a more cooperative manner, that might seem actually endearing or or a gesture toward collaboration. But but given the record, I, I, I think it's kind of difficult to take him at face value. Yeah, and it, it's something that early on um, during the state of the state, the governor wore a dress that got a lot of commentary. And in response... Um, Speaker Chatfield actually said, you know, stood up for, quote unquote, my governor and said, she's the governor. You should be more respectful. It shouldn't be about what she wore. And in that context and being so early on, you know, I I applauded that message. Um, But since then, what that means has changed significantly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's talk about the effect that this might have on the ability to get things done between now and the end of the year. You guys will go back to Lansing next week. There's a lot on the agenda that's undone, including lots of wrangling over over budget issues, which continues. But is this is this a sign that we are not going to see an awful lot of cooperation? Yeah, I, I don't get the sense um, that the majority leader wants to work together, unfortunately. Um, we've put a lot on the table. And I think that what we have to grapple with is it's no longer one party rule in the state of Michigan. We are in divided government and there's two ways that can go. We can either be collaborative and meet in the middle or we gridlock. And that is a choice that the majority party has the decision to make. They can choose to work with us on things or they can choose to gridlock on things. And, and, and that has been frustrating to see that that's the choice when voters voted overwhelmingly for the governor. Um, I flipped a Senate district against an incumbent and voters sent a message they wanted a different approach. So trying to do the same thing as usual, it just doesn't work. So so before we turn to this other subject of tax incentives, which you've written an op-ed about and, and really want to drill down on, I, I wonder what you think the governor's approach to this has, has, has done. What has she achieved? A lot of people have been very critical of her approach, especially to the budget, the the way in which she tried to push back against Republicans who wouldn't go along with some of the things that she wanted. Does she have to rethink her strategy as well here? You know, I think all of us do. And I will say that my MO moving in, especially as a new member, was I spent time getting to know everybody on the other side of the aisle. I scheduled meetings with my committee chairs one on one just to start to build relationships. Um, And I think that's what the governor did early on as well. It was this feeling of compromise and working together and let's all meet in the middle. um, And that's been abused, frankly. So, you know, I I don't blame her. We're all learning as we go into our new jobs. um, And the approach has to change because we've tried you know, working together, and, and that hasn't worked. Hmm. Uh, my guest is State Senator Mallory, Mallory McMorrow. She's a Democrat from Royal Oak. She represents the 13th Senate District, and she recently wrote an op-ed in Crane's Detroit Business that's titled, It's Time for Smarter Incentives here in Michigan. Uh, if you have a question for the senator, you want to talk about the relationships in Lansing between Republicans and Democrats, 
Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Are they pointing toward a productive end of the legislative year, or are they pointing toward more stalemate? Uh, Also, give us a call and talk about what you think about the kinds of incentives we offer here in the state of Michigan for businesses to locate here. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Mallory, in your op-ed, you say Michigan is missing the mark on attracting businesses. Why do you believe that's true? Yeah, so we have a number of kind of top-down tax incentives uh, that are coming down in the state, and and we're seeing this on the national level as well. You know, we saw the news from the New York Times last weekend that FedEx received uh, a massive tax break to the tune of $1.6 billion and paid effectively net zero in taxes, and the government now owes them money. Uh, Simultaneously, we're seeing these in Michigan, where the idea is if we give a company a tax break, they will either relocate to the state or expand in the state, and new jobs will will be created and that will be economic development. But simultaneously, we're dead last in the country for increases to education funding. Revenue sharing to our local communities is down. Obviously, we haven't fixed the roads. We have a lead water issue that we have to address. Um, so it, it can't just be for the top and we haven't seen the trickle down work. So my argument is I don't think these are going away anytime soon. They're very politically popular, right? If you're a legislator, you can point to one of these programs and say, I voted for this. It created a thousand jobs. Therefore, I am a job creator. Mm. Um, so it's it's going to be a challenge to push back against that. And I don't think it's as clean to say our best economic development policy is investing in schools and roads and water and, and local communities, although I believe that it is. But if you look at what we put forward for Amazon versus Northern Virginia, We were ready to offer about $4 billion worth of incentives, whereas Virginia, Northern Virginia, offered about $800 million in incentives, which is still not a drop in the bucket by Mm -hmm. any means, but also over a billion dollars to expand Virginia Tech in Northern Virginia and a few hundred million dollars in improvements to infrastructure and mass transit. So my argument is if we're going to go after these types of programs, let's use them as a spark to invest in ourselves simultaneously, where we can actually spend less and get more. So it's even the most fiscally responsible approach as well. So we're not just trying to go after these things from the top down. Uh, So Governor Snyder was, when he was elected at least, was one of the harshest critics of all of the incentives that we offered to to companies to, to come here and said that he wanted to zero them out, that he was not going to approach it that way. He talked a lot about this concept of economic gardening, making sure that businesses that are already here have opportunities to grow and expand and and do all those things. He had a heck of a time pursuing that consistently, partially because it's so much part of the culture in Lansing. I mean, there is, there is an assumption that this is the way things work. And even worse, other states are competing with us in that realm. So uh, stepping away from incentives would have been some sort of unilateral disarmament. Uh, Talk about why you think we maybe have a different kind of opportunity, have a different conversation about that now than we had over the last eight years, where I think the the results are, are very, very mixed. Right. And I think you're starting to see that, you know, this is when you talk about tax incentives, it's such a wonky issue. But it is now a part of the public dialogue. You watch any of the presidential debates and we talk about, quote unquote, corporate welfare and the one percent versus the 99 percent. So I think there is a much broader understanding of what these issues mean. Um, And there's also interest on both sides of the aisle. So I have some colleagues on uh, the Republican side of the aisle who who similarly disagree with these types of incentives, maybe for slightly different reasons than I do, mm-hmm. but see that they are ineffective. So I think there's an opportunity now, and, and it is hard in Lansing. I have companies come into my office and threaten that they will leave the state if I don't give them a tax break. Mm. That is how it works. Um, but we're starting to get enough people in Lansing who haven't done this their entire career, so I think might be willing to stand up and call their bluff. Um, and we have some some kind of unholy alliances that we're starting to form uh, where we might be able to actually push back. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that citizens in Michigan don't quite understand is how much of these incentives we have given away already and how much they impact the current budget. In other words, that we start off 
with so much money going to 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 breaks and incentives right. that uh, by the time we start talking about spending money on services, right. we, we have so much less than we should. Yeah, and it's death by a thousand cuts. Um, Tim Bartik from the Upjohn Institute has some fantastic research on this, and I think it, it is this misspread idea that it's free money, right? Good Jobs for Michigan is a perfect example of it, where we're not giving a company money. We're allowing them to keep income taxes from employees if they create enough, quote unquote, good jobs. Mm -hmm. So let's say, for example, there are 300 new jobs created. Um, The claim is that's new money that we wouldn't have had elsewhere. But if we're capturing those employees' income taxes, those people are still sending their kids to our schools. They're still using our roads. They're still using our public services and EMS and fire, which means that the current residents are subsidizing those new jobs. And if we're not raising taxes elsewhere to pay for these subsidies, that's a cut in public services. There's only two way to pay for these things. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Leslie in Hazel Park. Leslie. Quickly, uh, we've got about a minute left, but I wanted to get you in here. Yes. Um, I was curious to see if um, there's anything on the docket for uh, retirees because I was, frankly, I was flabbergasted when after 30 plus years of uh, working for uh, uh, my employer and now and getting taxed on all that money. And now in retirement, they're tax retaxing mm-hmm. that much same mm-hmm. darn money yeah. that I worked so hard for, and and it just infuriates me. And yeah, I Leslie, think it should be um, uh, illegal. Leslie, I don't I don't want to cut you off, but I but we're running out of time. Uh, sure. Mallory, that was a very controversial move by the Snyder administration to tax Absolutely. pensions. Is there any discussion about changing it? There is. Um, honestly, I don't think it's going to happen this year. It was in the governor's initial budget proposal, but because things have stalled out and we are now just arguing over basics, um, that's something that that I believe in. I know the governor believes in and many people believe in reversing that. Um, and hopefully that will happen in, in a future session. Okay. Mallory McMorrow, state senator from Royal Oak, who represents the 13th Senate District. Great to have you here with us. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for coming by. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. We will talk about the role of community spaces in cities like Centerline and beyond. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.